The TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi everyone, welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions about the entertainment industry. Guy Dan Schmidt, your host, and with me is a guy who believes in miracles, my co-host. Hey everybody, it's Nico, and welcome to Across the Airways. On this week's episode, we will continue to cover the new series of Doctor Who with an in-depth discussion of the Season 8, Episode 10 episode entitled In the Forest of the Night, and an episode of Castle, Sleepy Hollow, Person of Interest, Supernatural, Legend of Korra, and Star Wars Rebels, along with our sitcom section, including Big Bang Theory and Modern Family. No new girl due to the World Series. And as always, we will also bring you all the TV and entertainment news of the week in the News with Nico section. All right, but before we get into all of that, we're going to have a News with Nico section discussing some exciting Guardians of the Galaxy stuff that you may like to get for Christmas. Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack is now getting released on cassette tape. With Guardians of the Galaxy grossing more than $730 million worldwide, it's clear that quite a few of you out there came and got your love. Although many came for Chris Pratt's abs, the exceedingly charismatic cast, the novelty of a machine gun toting raccoon riding a giant tree, and interstellar action, we all stayed for the incredible soundtrack, which curated some of the catchiest tunes of the 1970s into one delightful throwback mixtape. Now you can experience the oral odyssey of the awesome mix volume 1, just like Star-Lord did, in cassette tape form. According to Billboard, the soundtrack, which is already available on vinyl and CD, will be available as a cassette tape as well on November 17th. This is great news for people looking to buy gifts for their comic book loving friends, who also happen to own really crappy cars. In all seriousness, it's a nice homage to the James Gunn-directed film that will make a marvelous companion piece to your officially licensed Baby Dancing Groot toy this holiday season. Sleepy Hollow casts Michelle Trackenberg as a founding mother. We've met Sleepy Hollow's versions of historical figures like George Washington and Ben Franklin. Now the Fox drama is about to remember the ladies. Michelle Trackenberg has been cast as a founding mother, Abigail Adams. The Buffy the Vampire vet will play the second first lady in an upcoming episode. In addition to being the second first lady of the United States, Abigail was the mother of future president John Quincy Adams and an early advocate of equal rights for women. In typical Sleepy Hollow fashion, we'll learn that Abigail had a secret life that involved Katrina Crane. Oh, man. Maybe Mrs. Adams was hanging out with the sisterhood of the Radiant Heart for some time, from time to time. I, I, that's my guess anyway. I guess we'll see for sure when she shows up later this season. Avengers Age of Ultron trailer officially released by Marvel Online. After the trailer was leaked online in poor quality, Marvel officially released the trailer that was set to premiere during next week's Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in glorious HD quality. Check it out at the link in the ACC feed now. More Avengers Age of Ultron footage to air during Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. next week. With the new Avengers Age of Ultron trailer being leaked before it was set to debut next Tuesday during an all-new episode of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. on ABC, Marvel will now air brand new footage instead, no doubt with hopes of keeping the ratings boosts that the episode would have gotten from the trailer debut. Marvel officially released the Age of Ultron trailer as a generous form of damage control after it was leaked online this past Wednesday. Since then, the trailer has racked up 34.3 million global views, smashing the previous record held by Iron Man 3 by over 20 million views in the same initial 24-hour period. Make sure to tune in to ABC on Tuesday at 9 p.m. for the all-new episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and the bonus material being released. 
Fox developing modern-day Frankenstein series. Frankenstein has come alive at Fox. The network has ordered a pilot for a modern-day sci-fi drama inspired by the Mary Shelley classic. Executive produced by Homeland's Howard Gordon and Crisis's Rand Ravitch, Frankenstein centers on Adam Tremble, a morally corrupt FBI agent who is given a second chance at life when he is brought back from the dead. Now younger and stronger, Tremble will have to choose between his old temptations and his new sense of purpose, all while navigating the complicated relationships with his, quote, creators, an antisocial internet billionaire, and his bioengineering twin sister. This won't be Gordon's first venture into the realm of sci-fi television, having worked on The X-Files, Angel, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer before. With a pedigree like that, you know I'm going to be watching this. Lindsay Fonseca joins Marvel's Agent Peggy Carter. Peggy Carter just got a new friend as Lindsay Fonseca has joined the cast of Marvel's Agent Carter. Marvels.com broke the news revealing the kick-ass and Nikita alum will play Angie Martinelli, described as an aspiring actress who befriends Peggy. Nikita fans know that Fonseca more than held her own through that show's impressive action scenes. We'll see if her role on Agent Carter, which seems to specifically represent Peggy's life away from the SSR duties, remains a strictly civilian one, or if some curveballs could be coming. Lindsay brings a warmth and humanity to Angie, who will be the friend Peggy needs if she's to survive the dangers that lie ahead. Agent Carter recently began production on its eight-episode season, which will air during a mid-season break for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Captain America the Winter Soldier writer Christopher Marcus and Stephen McFeely penned the pilot episode with Tara Butters and Michelle Fazekas, executive producing the series. Look for Agent Carter starting in November during the S.H.I.E.L.D. hiatus. Morena Baccarin joins Gotham. Morena Baccarin from Firefly, Homeland, and V is headed to Fox's Gotham to play a famous character from the Batman-verse. IGN is reporting that Baccarin is set to play the role of Dr. Leslie Tompkins, a gifted and dedicated physician who was a friend of the late Thomas and Martha Wayne. Altruistic in nature, Tompkins is determined to help the city's less fortunate, which means a steady gig as a caregiver at the brand new Arkham Asylum. She'll also develop eyes for Jim Gordon, played by Ben McKenzie in this series, while also getting into her own fair share of hot water. The Leslie Tompkins DC character dates back to the 70s where, as a friend of the Waynes, she served as a surrogate mother to Bruce after the Crime Alley tragedy, and then later as a confidant to Batman. Obviously, Baccarin is playing the younger version of the character who was depicted in the comics and on the Batman the Animated Series as a gray-haired woman. But will the show add any more spins to her character? We will see. Baccarin's recurring character will appear on the series in early 2015. We don't have an episode number for you yet, but we'll keep you up to date. I was very surprised with this casting because Buzzy Tomskids, I always thought, was always an old lady. <laughs> right. I mean, that's kind of how they said it was in the comics. Because it's a little bit different, but again, they need to kind of mix it up for the TV show sake. Gotta I, get story out of it. I like it. I like it. I, I love Marina Baccarin, so I yeah. absolutely love this and her coming to another show that we absolutely love. That's going to be a lot of fun. But it, it should be good to see. CW grants full season order to The Flash. The Flash is going to yes. keep on running, while Jane the Virgin will carry to term. The CW That's announces awesome. on Tuesday that it has granted full season orders to both of its fall debuts, totaling 23 and 22 episodes respectively, on the heels of well-watched premieres and critical acclaim. Quote, we had a fantastic start to our season this year, with The Flash launching as our most-watched series premiere ever, and Jane the Virgin recognized as the best new show this season by critics across the country. Network President Mark Pedowitz said in a statement, The Flash debut as the most-watched series premiere ever on the CW, amassing 6.1 million viewers in the Live Plus 3 ratings, and was the network's highest-rated series premiere among adults 18 to 49 in more than five years. Rejoice, as this is just the first step in getting renewed for Season 2.
Yeah, got very excited about this. It's well deserved. Good news, good news, because it's just that next step in ensuring we get a season two, which I think this this series absolutely deserves. We, we've talked about it. We're absolutely in love with this version of the Flash on CW. Yep. It's really good. I'm, I'm excited as well. Yep, for sure. Good Arrow's going to get excited too. Yeah. Speaking of Arrow, Arrow casts Vinny Jones as DC Comics villain Brett. British actor Vinny Jones from Snatch, X Men: The Last Stand, and a ton of other films is joining the mayhem over in Star. City as one of Arrow's famous DC comic foes. As Variety reports, Jones will be playing Danny Brick Brickwell, a ruthless gang leader who's called Brick because of all the times he's been shot but not killed. And in the comics, he has an impenetrable brick-like skin. The name Brickwell has been teased before on an earlier season of Arrow as one of the many names on Oliver's list. Jones has signed on for a multiple episode arc, appearing in episodes 10, 11, and 12 of this season. Brick has appeared in animated form before on Young Justice and in DC Nation Shorts. But this will be his live-action debut. Exciting stuff. Well, this is a character that is a major villain of the Green Arrow. Yeah. He is in his rogues gallery, so it's really cool that we're going to get to see Oliver go up against one of these characters. Yeah, it's a good move. It's it's a great move to bring, as you said, a, a big-time Green Arrow villain from the comics to the show and keep him probably the same. Obviously, we're not going to say he has brick-like skin necessarily, but he will have a propensity to be able to survive gunshots. So I do think yeah, that, that's going to be interesting him having a British accent. I, I think Vinnie Jones looks the part, but uh, this this works too. Again, I think Vinnie Jones going up against these characters are going to be pretty cool. It's going to be a lot of fun. I, I just hope we get, I hope he brings a little bit of the characterization that he, he did in all those lock, stock, snatch, all, all those kinds of films, you know, the Guy Ritchie films. I hope he brings that sort of characterization to the character because that's what we love about this Vinnie Jones actor. You know, we I love him anyway for his, his great portrayals in those films. And so if he's got a little bit of that in the Brit character, I think that's going to make it so much more successful. So I'm excited to see if they do that. The Flash casting. Roger Hotworth to recur. The Flash's Iris is getting a mentor. A rep for the series has confirmed that the General Hospital star Roger Hotworth ha- will recur as Mason Bridge, a reporter from the Central City Picture News. However, things won't be so easy for Iris when Mason starts to investigate Dr. Wells. And as of now, only us viewers know how dangerous that could be. Hotworth, who has also appeared on One Life to Live, As the World Turns, and, and the Flash executive producer Berlanti's former show, Dawson's Creek, will first appear as Mason in episode 11. Deadline was the first to report this casting, and for more information, follow that link in the ACC feed. Interesting. It's about time to get him exposed. Yeah, you know, I have no idea about this actor. I've never seen him. I'm not a big soap star, and I don't remember him from Dawson's Creek, so I don't really have much to add about him other than, you know, from his casting headshot, he looks like a reporter. He he looks like he could fit that role perfectly. Sort of the... Perry White? Yeah, Perry White. Absolutely. Thank you for that. I think he could fit a very Perry White sort of role in this because Mason Bridge as far as I know this is made up for this series and so that's going to be interesting if they bring some of that Perry White character to this and give it a little bit its own thing but I think he's going to he's going to serve as that sort of mentor like Perry White was to Lois Lane for Iris in this series so I think that's going to be yeah. an interesting story and then what's going to happen when he starts he starts investigating the blur at, or the red streak I'm sorry the blur was <laughs> Smallville the red streak and sort of 
starts going after Dr. Wells as well. Uh, how's that going to fit? What's it going to do between her and Barry? Is it going to cause issues? I think this is a really great path that they're going to go down, and it's going to add a lot of tension now, to Now, is Iris got the path towards becoming a journalist right now? Yes. Okay, so okay. She, she's a psych major right now, but her, she's but starting... to change it like they did with Laurel Cardinal. Yeah, the, she's, she's, yeah, she's started in one path, and she wants to be a psychologist, but ultimately her interest in the Red Streak and doing this blog and, and contributing to this blog and all that stuff is going to spark this interest in investigative journalism in her, and it's going to turn her and make her into this great reporter that we remember from the comics. And I think this character, this Mason Bridge, is going to latch onto her and mentor her and, and really turn her from a psych major into a journalism major or a, a journalist. So I think that's going to be interesting to see how that goes about. Yeah, and I agree with you on that. The Late Late Show with James Corden gets March premiere. CBS has set a premiere date for The Late Late Show with James Corden, Monday, March 9th at 1237, 1137 Central. Corden is succeeding Craig Ferguson, who in April announced his intention to leave The Late Late Show after 10 years and will sign off on December 19th, 2014. In announcing Corden's official premiere date, CBS has also revealed that producer, director, and writer Ben Winston from The X Factor, One Direction's Best Song Ever, a friend of Corden's since their teenage years, will serve as The Late Late Show's executive producer. Winston's project include producing Corden when he hosted the prestigious Brit Awards for four years and directed and co-writing several Smithy sketches with Corden for BBC One's Red Nose Day charity telethon. I'm actually excited by James Corden taking over after Craigie Ferg, so I'll be watching March 9th to see how he kicks it off. ABC's Manhattan Love Story is fall TV season's first cancellation. The romantic comedy, which starred Annalee Tipton and Jack and Jake McDorman as a new couple in the Big Apple, has been canceled, making it the first official victim of this fall TV season. The internal monologue-heavy rom-com premiered on October 1st to 4.7 million total viewers and a 1.5 rating, and by its fourth outing had dropped to 2.7 million and a 0.7 rating. Even more damning, the show was only seeing a 15% boost from Live Plus 7 DVR playback, the lowest return of any scripted series this fall. Next Tuesday, a Halloween special fills ABC's 8 o'clock hour, and then on November 4th, at least, Love Story spot will be filled by a second helping of Selfie, which has been averaging 4.1 million viewers and a 1.1 rating in the Live Plus SD, and a DVR boost of 36%. So at least Selfie's doing pretty decent. And that's the news with Nico for this week. All right, with that, we're going to kick off this week's discussions with the Doctor Who episode entitled In the Forest of the Night. Huge forests grow up overnight, go around the world, and begin to overwhelm the Earth. Now, Doctor Who often asks a lot of its viewers, whether it is believing in creatures that look like stone angels that have the ability to send people through time and feed off their lost potential, or that the moon is actually an egg that suddenly has gained much more mass. Our enjoyment of the series requires us to suspend our disbelief for a moment, suspend what we know to be true in our hearts and minds in exchange for an hour of amazing storytelling. I am usually more than willing to give up scientific fact and accuracy for a truly compelling story, and that is something we have gotten very frequently with Doctor Who. I'm willing to believe most anything this series throws at me, actually, but that being said, this episode in The Forest of the Night was not the show's best work. Its message and delivery were clunky at best. Essentially, the message was, save the tree they protect us from harm by providing us with oxygen and you'll all forget this ever happened because you're humans and that's what you do and while in the forest of the night isn't likely to go down in classic who history it was at least a refreshing tonal shift from the season's predominantly dark 
and gloomy and morally disruptive undercurrent thus far. And somewhere buried beneath the magical forest that sprung up overnight to protect the planet from a solar flare was some actually good character moments. So I am by no means saying that I did not enjoy this episode. I am merely saying that it is not one that will be very memorable going forward. But in fairness, there were definitely things I enjoyed. I liked the idea of the ancient terrestrial entities that control the plants and have protected Earth for millions of years. I love that they had no idea who or what the Doctor is and will continue to exist long after he and all of us are dead. If I'm being honest, that was a really neat idea. I also liked the little character moments between the Doctor and Clara, especially at the end when all hope was lost and Clara tells the Doctor to leave that an Earthling can save him for once. That was actually the best part of this episode for me. So Dan, what was your impression of this week's episode? You know, I thought the Doctor stuff was better. Okay. I was complaining about the darkness, you know, mm-hmm. over the past couple of weeks, and this was much better for me. My thoughts bringing the kids lighten the mood, so I like that. My thoughts her lie to Danny, Clara lying to Danny, getting resolved was perfect. Okay. That they, they that they got that out of the way, taken care of, because that really wasn't sitting right with me. Mm-hmm. And the save the trees was a little cliche, but less cliche than I thought it would be. Okay. Because normally these types of stories, it's about nature taking revenge. God, this was the opposite. Right. So I'm glad they did a twist on it to make it a little different, but still it was like, okay, this feels like third going. Yeah, that's a good point. But I did like the, the kind of E.T. feel the episode had a little bit. Okay. Where there were shot dogs like Spielberg filmed that movie from the eyes of a child uh-huh. and running around the woods with those guys in those fireproof suits reminded me of the space bed for E.T. Right. Because that's one of my favorite movies so I enjoyed that as well. But yeah, I mean, I enjoyed this episode better than a couple of the past ones we've had. Especially that mood episode. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, so this was, because it was a little more satisfying, I just thought character-wise it was much better because I think the doctor, Clara, willing to sacrifice herself for him kind of made him a little more personable. Yeah. Again, it making that progress. And so I like that because it did feel we're going that way more so. Yeah, I just didn't think that this episode lived up to the last two, which I really did enjoy. I liked Flatline and I really enjoyed the Mummy on the Orient Express. I thought those two were some of the better of this season. And so this one was kind of a step down from that, but yeah. it wasn't a step backwards, like going back to the dark or going to something that was, you know, something we really didn't like. It just didn't capture us as much as maybe some of the storytelling in those last two episodes did. Yeah, I, I think those episodes were almost better story and monster of the week-wise. Yeah. Where this was better character-wise. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, they can't seem to get it together yet. <laughs> yeah. So, Dan, I think it's safe to say that the, for the majority of the season, the Doctor has been on a journey of self-discovery. He knows he's not a good man and he's done some awful things in his past, but he genuinely wants to help people even if the real reason is because he's physically incapable of passing up a puzzle or a mystery, because his innate curiosity will always get the better of him, and if that plus whatever guilt he may feel translates into a heroic tendency on a global or universal scale, then so be it. I guess I can't really argue if, if it really means that the Doctor saves the day, although he was mostly just a messenger this week for the real heroes, the flame-resistant forest, and the world continues to exist to fight the next invasion or threat despite him not really doing much. So Dan, is that why we've struggled at times this season with the Doctor because he seems only to help because the situation is a new puzzle for him, and it somewhat seems less like the previous incarnations and what do you make of the doctor not really being the hero this week he was just like a messenger 
Well, you know, the big thing was this doctor's kind of had an ego, and I think putting it aside this week was a good step forward into him becoming more like his previous incarnations. Okay. And also, the interesting thing is the past few weeks, when it's really come down to it, he decides to protect Earth and sees it as his home. Yeah. Like the other incarnations. I did, I did like that when he said that this is my home. I walk this Earth and breathe this air. And, you know, so that was a criticism that Clara had had in the Moon episode that we were, right. we were not big fans of. So them going Going back to that and him him realizing this is my home, this is my new home. It it was a good moment, and that's part of that character, great character moments that we were talking about earlier in this episode. So you're absolutely right. You know, it's almost like and this is an interesting theory I just came up with now. It's almost like because the doctor added extra lives, it's like this time around it was almost like a total restart. Okay, does that make sense? Yeah, it does a little bit, and it makes it seem like okay, we can forgive some of this clunkiness because he's sort of relearning everything. He He's totally had a reset. Yeah, that makes a little more sense. Yeah, it's like a computer upgrading to a new operating system <laughs> where all the visuals are different, you know? Yeah, it's not just a, a patch or an update. This is a full overhaul. Okay. Yeah, this is the jump from Windows 7 to Windows uh, 8. Yep. Yeah, that, that kind of thing. Now, the monsters this week were not really monsters at all, and there's been a strange trend in Series 8 of Doctor Who, and that is to have threats in episodes not actually be threats. It hasn't happened in every episode, mind you, but it has been happening a fair number of times this season. Of the 10 episodes that we've seen so far, four of the episodes have turned out that the big thing that needs stopping is actually nothing bad at all. Three have had villains who were simply misguided automaton-like creatures who were just doing what they were programmed to do, and only three had actual honest-to-goodness antagonists, and in one of those cases, it was the Daleks. Not that I have anything against episodes that kind of work themselves out on their own or lack a true enemy, but it just strikes me as odd that so many this year have been essentially misunderstood understandings by the Doctor or the Doctor not knowing what was going on. That seems to be another theme of the season, it seems. At least next week, with the start of the two-part finale, it appears we will have a true villain as Missy seems to have possessed or somehow inhabited Clara's body, and we will finally start to get an answer to all our questions about her next week, and in the second half of the season finale in two weeks. So Dan, what do you think of my observation of the theme of this season being essentially misunderstandings by the Doctor or the Doctor not knowing what was going on? Have you caught on to that? Yeah, I have. I have caught on to that. You know, I, I think it just goes with him, the development and him becoming more personable. Okay. I think this is the way they thought they could do it and get away with it. And so that's why they're going for that. Okay. But I think we're going to get less of that next season. Yeah. And I'm really excited about next week. I, 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 we've been talking about the Missy character since she first appeared in the yeah. premiere. So we've been trying to figure her out. And I think you you did a pretty good job of it, Dan. I, I, I have been agreeing with you all season. That... Well, I'm going to add another layer to that. Okay. Okay. What, what I'm thinking here now, the reason why she's decided to strike next week in a huge capacity because now the earth is cheated dust uh, with the trees. So now that now that's you know a billion people. So now she's really wants to get involved because if she is truly death, the death is going to be bad. That many people escaped. Okay. And so that's where it comes. I don't know how the Cybermen fit into it all. That's where I you know they're just an stuck. instrument of death. <laughs> I guess. Okay. But again, essentially, Cybermen are people turned into robotic beings. Right. And so maybe that's considered as. I don't know, like a, a weapon of death or, you know, something like that. Yeah, I'm not entirely sure how that works either. And then she might not be the actual death and she's just hijacked right. it. So I, I, Cybermen have hijacked us. Yeah, or, or Missy has hijacked it and then somehow incorporated the Cybermen into it or, I, to be it's honest. It's going to be something about what happens to a soul of the person when they become a Cybermen. Okay. I think it's going to go there. Or is she capturing souls of people who have died and then somehow 
somehow using them as a weapon to take over the Cybermen or yeah. control the Cybermen or something of that nature. Yeah, I could see any of that <laughs> being a possibility. God, man, I, I hope that maybe Danny gets involved with this. Yeah, maybe he's the one that gets Clara out of you possessed. I think you are on the right path. I think that something happens. She takes control of Clara and the doctor goes to get Danny to try and bring her back because he is unable to connect with Clara and the, the Clara inside and then overcome the entity that's inside her or whatever. And Danny Pink is going to be the, the bridge that he needs to go and get to help him so he can connect or something like that. I think that that's probably where they're going to go. Okay, I agree. And their their love is going to be the, the connection that is the strongest and what is able to bring her back or something of that nature. And I think bringing her back will make her stay on Earth and see the wonders. Yeah. Come Earth like he wanted her to. Yeah, when, when she realizes that that's the most important thing to her, then she's going to give up traveling with the Doctor for good. Yep. Yep. Now, there wasn't anything specific that I could point to that made this episode not as good as the past two episodes. And really, it was not that the episode was bad, like I said. I, I wouldn't necessarily say this episode was boring. It was just very devoid of things occurring. It felt a lot of the time like we were just watching the characters walk around to eat up minutes until the revelation could happen. I just don't think I'll even remember it at the end of the season, or if I do, it will mainly be for some of the character moments with Danny Pink and Clara and how she tried to save the Doctor in exchange for all the times he'd saved the world and get him to leave without them all. Oh, and the wild animals were pretty fun as well. I gotta say that. Besides that, it will be otherwise quite forgettable for me. So Dan, was there anything you thought that did not work this week or needed improvement? And also, did you have any final thoughts before we wrap up this episode? All I'm going to say is what I said before is that this week they got the characters right. Yeah. The past two weeks they got the story right. They need to bring it all together. Get I think the series finale maybe. Yeah. Yeah, they do it. Because you say season finale. Season finale. They call it series in in England, but, uh, you know. It just gets confusing. (laughs) Yes. All right. That about does it for this week's Doctor Who discussion. Make sure to join us again next week for our discussion of the first part of the two-part season finale with the 11th episode, Dark Water. All right. Yeah. Speaking of dark water, there are some people that had to deal with some dark, scary water with a ghost inside. Got this week's Sleepy Hollow episode. Get titled The Weeping Lady. ghostly spirit, the Weeping Lady, kills Ichabod's friend Caroline. After it attacks Abby, Ichabod realizes that the ghost is going after his loved ones, and Katrina is her next intended victim. I was mad that this episode started with Ichabod's friend Caroline getting killed off, because I thought she'd make for a good love interest for him. If Katrina switches sides, or ends up dead, like this episode sort of foreshadowed. Kanika, were you upset that they uh, killed off this Caroline character? Uh, no, Dan. I am not a fan of the actress that played Caroline, and she annoys me to no end. She's is that same... because of the Big Bang Theory episode? She is the same actress playing Raj's girlfriend this season on Big Bang Theory, and she's also a squint on Bones as well. As oh, you, really? Yeah. I was not a huge fan of her on Big Bang and was equally annoyed with her here, so I was actually okay with her getting killed in the episode. I know it sounds terrible, but I was. Also, I'm not entirely sure that I want a love interest character for Ichabod other than Katrina. I just don't see that as likely. Even if Katrina were to betray them and help the horsemen, Ichabod is a traditionalist and would not betray his marriage vows unless Katrina were truly dead. So I don't see the utility of another love interest or the likelihood that it would actually happen. So, 
uh, I'm okay with them not going this route. Okay, now, would you be okay with this type of character if they did get up getting to a point where they need to kill Katrina? Yeah, but it would have to be a while after. You know, there would have to be half a season until he started to think of even things like that. Because I just, I don't know how long the Katrina storyline can run, you know? Yeah, I think we're going to get into that in a moment when we talk about her and where we think she's going. But, yeah, I agree. I'm not entirely sure at this point where it's going. Because, like, you know, a lot of these shows, it starts out building, get to a relationship. Right. And this is kind of already established. So I just don't know how long it could run because of that factor. Well, they keep throwing curveballs at the relationship, right. and the, and they'll continue to, I think. But but I don't think that's going to direct it towards Abby, everybody. Because yeah, we're not going there. Again, uh, Caroline, getting killed off stuck at me, but I thought it powerfully drove home the point that this week's threat was personal for Ichabod, because the weeping lady was the woman he turned down for Katrina. Easily, this weeping lady could have become like a one-shot villain for a standalone episode. Kind of like the Pied Piper from last week. But making her a monster created by Ichabod's past got almost so much more into the story. Got resolved by issue any of the episode where Ichabod, who always seems to know the monsters of the week's origin, knew nothing about the legend of this weeping lady. But that's because it had nothing to do with the Revolutionary War. Nico, what did you think about the writer's decision to make the weeping lady a product of Ichabod's personal life? Can you think it was a good way to mix up the usual procedure the show follows? Because Ichabod always seemed to know the monster's backgrounds from his days living in the 1700s? I do, Dan. We've seen a number of times where the monster of the week tied back to Ichabod's time of the Revolutionary War, and he has been well-versed in the creation and often the ways in which to eliminate the monster, or had at least heard of the lore. By making this week's monster an unknown entity of Ichabod's past that he did not know about, made for something different and more exciting this week by being something we have not seen from this story yet before, but yet at the same time something that totally fits within the series thematically. Oh, I, felt, yeah. I felt like it, it was exactly what we expect. They just did it a completely different way and still made it work and feel natural to this series. I think that, again, is another example of these writers just really, really doing a, a great job. And knowing how to challenge Ichabod in different ways. And knowing how to write within their series to make it feel like their series and not a completely separate yeah. episode. Yeah, that's so good. Yeah, I was, I was very, very impressed with this. Um, again, it's really got that tight deal that the first five seasons of Supernatural had. Yes. Where you get monsters of the week and you also had monsters and stories that connected back to their past. Got uh, C.B. Howell, I mean, they're, they're getting it right on this. It's it's really good and I think it made it that much more surprising because they went off their regular pattern but made it work. Again, speaking of making things work, I mean, how just keeps getting more interesting when he appears on screen. Again, it's just because you just don't know what the guy's going to do. Like last week, he was a complete douche. This week, he's kind of got their side and wanting to help and be the nice guy. Again, that was that was just interesting. Every time on screen, I'm so invested in this character because I'm wondering, what's he going to do? What's his motive here? What's his angle? And that keeps me guessing. And the fact that he's separate from Malik, it's like, okay, really, where is this guy going to go? Again, on top of that, I'm just who doesn't enjoy a character that just happens to have Van Helsing's crossbow later out? I mean, that's just awesome. I think it makes Holly the guy you want to know. Yeah. Because you got anything more speculation about maybe where Holly's character is headed. Can you pick up on him kind of having the hots for both real sisters? Do you think it's become a storyline that's going to be fun or annoying? Dan, definitely fun. I love that he just happened to have the crossbow that once belonged to the real Van Helsing lying around his houseboat. I mean, every week we see something new about this character that makes us like him even more. For me this week, it was pretty sweet houseboat and the Van Helsing crossbow. And he becomes an even more interesting character. That backstory or flashback episode about him needs to happen soon. And I'm I'm sure part of that will show us his previous relationship with Jenny Mills. Man, I like this character and I have to say he's a great addition to the second season and I'm guessing he will eventually become part of the team. It'll 
just cause a little bit of romantic tension because he will be flirting with both sisters. Yeah, and I'm going to say about the flashback, that may explain the reason why Holly is the way he is. Yeah, that, that's a good point. We, we don't know why he seems to be protecting himself emotionally and preventing himself from joining the team and helping out. There's got to be something there. And he, he got burned in the past. He's had friends die, something of that nature, and he's just looking out for number one because he's been hurt in the past or something like that. That's my yeah. guess. Yeah, that'll be an interesting turn of events or maybe a twist on his character. Agreed. Good, uh, speaking of twists, I thought the twist in this episode was going to be the Headless Horseman teaming up with Ichabod to save Katrina. But it was something much more shocking. Yeah, as Katrina accidentally caused the weekly lady stuff, Gad kept it from Ichabod to make sure he fought in the Revolutionary War against Moloch. Come, I honestly thought the writers were going to reveal Katrina flat out killed the weekly lady to make sure Ichabod saved the colonies, but that might have given away Katrina switching sides to the audience. It might have been just too much for her character. Again, again, I think the show wants to keep us guessing, so why do something like that? Kandika, did you appreciate the twist? Okay, where do you think it'll lead for Ichabod and Katrina? Dan, I think this twist will cause some issues for Ichabod and Katrina going forward, but not as much as one might otherwise expect. Ichabod may start to question if he really knows his wife and wonder just how many other things she is keeping from him or has hidden from him in the past and will breed some distrust, but ultimately it will, it will amount to nothing and they will reconcile. Also, I know you have said a few times that you believe that Katrina is going to betray them and switch sides, but I just don't see that happening. That's not where I think things are going to go. She okay. may say that she is warming up to the horsemen, and I still think there is the possibility that she will have some supernatural Stockholm syndrome and believe that she can save him, save or turn Abraham from Moloch, but I do not see her actually switching sides, especially not with how much Moloch tortured her by locking her away in purgatory for centuries. Yeah. Anyway, I, I don't see her actually switching sides. She may play turncoat to gain their trust and act as a spy for Abby and Ichabod, which she is a knowing, knowing spy at the moment, but she will not truly switch sides in my opinion. At least that's not where I see it going. Well, the other thing is the horseman may end up having his own side, because she may want to try to help him. Yeah. But not Moloch. I think, I think you're right that when she, because she is starting to, to see, well, she sees him as Abraham, but she's starting to see him as Abraham too, you know, in, in the sense of recognizing his humanity again and seeing the parts of him that she did actually enjoy when they were engaged and dating and stuff. And so I do see that happening in her, but you might be right that he, he will break from Moloch or he will go his own way and she will try to help him and redeem him in that sense. And, and I could see that as a partial betrayal, but in the in reality, I think it'll be more of that. She thinks she can save him, but maybe won't be able to. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I thought that just because Ichabod did team up with the horseman in this episode, um, I didn't think that doesn't mean it's not going to happen in the future. Because I really think he may become the character that seeks redemption instead of Henry. Yeah. Because he did go out to save Katrina, got his own accord. And at the same time, I mean, this development might be disappointing because it probably means Chad Noble won't always be on this show. But I think his desire for vengeance, which we saw in this episode, may just be too deep to be saved. What do you think of that, Nico? Yeah, as I was kind of saying a moment ago, I think that Katrina in her supernatural Stockholm Syndrome state will think that she can save Abraham and turn him from being the Headless Horseman and join, maybe even join Abby and Ichabod. But I'm not sure if he can actually be saved or find redemption. I think you are right that he is the character that is most likely at this point to seek it or or them try to save him. If he were able, I do think it would be through Katrina though. Also, as you said, Henry does seem possibly too far gone to be able to be redeemed. 
I, of course, would prefer it to be Henry that turns against Moloch and joins his parents' side, as that would keep John Noble on the show for longer and in a character that we can start to root for. But if he's going to stay dark, I hope he goes really dark, and we get to see some great Walternate-like darkness out of Henry. I could see his continued villainy being an opportunity to get some really great work out of John Noble and really great acting. And actually, I'm looking forward to seeing just how dark he can get and just what great villainous stuff he brings to this character. So I'm actually pretty excited either way it goes with him. Yeah, I think it's going to be good stuff. You know, I, I, I like the Horseman character too. Kind of want to see him go. And I really feel like because Ichabod did not know who he was when he chopped his head off, I still think that there may be a situation where even Ichabod still might want to try to save his friend. That is true. Because he did see him as a friend. Again, a lot of these types of stories where the friend goes evil, the hero always wants to still try to save them. Right. Garfield's responsible. So we may get some of that as well. Again, he may have to, at, at points, because I know he has anger issues, may have to be convinced to get there by Emmy and maybe Katrina too. But uh, I, I think that may be a factor in things. I could definitely see it going that way. I, l- I like that idea, Dan. So that's what I think. But hey, either way, it's going to be fun no matter where it goes. Because <laughs> these writers know what they're doing and I trust them there. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. uh, Speaking of which, we're going to go to talking about a show where I've been questioning the writers. I thought this was a better installment. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it's made things completely better, but I did enjoy this episode. So we'll go with that. Going to get Nathan Fillard doing what we love about him. So you can't really go wrong there. So let's talk about the castle episode, Child's Play. Castle goes undercover at an elementary school to find the second grader who may possess information about the shooting of an ice cream vendor. With audiences loving Castle for just being a big kid, it made sense for us to finally get an episode where we interacted with real kids. Now, let's just say this premise got some huge laughs out of it. Especially when playing Army Man with the kid made a grass stay look like Castle won his pants. Get Castle interacting with his own personal eight-year-old nemesis who called him Jerk Face. Nico, were you laughing at Castle's interactions with the kids as much as I was? Now, did you think Nathan Phillips played these things in a way that they that come off as cutesy because I know sometimes with these kids episodes we get cutesy stuff this time around I thought it worked oh absolutely it worked in a sense I felt like this was Nathan Fillon's kindergarten cop episode and I was waiting the whole episode for a it's not a tumor or who is my daddy and what does he do I love Castle's big kid status being used to great effect in this episode, and I felt like the Castle peeing himself was a nod to almost like Billy Madison as well. I, I really enjoyed this episode and felt like it was yet again a great standalone episode that was fun-filled and not cutesy at all, in my opinion. I thought it worked exactly the way we like Castle episodes to work. Yeah, and I really thought it would help that along was just the philosophies about writing and lessons about life in general Castle used to find the kid that was a witness yes. cut to this week's murder. God, I really I think the scene that captured his most was the fairy princess tea party he had with the little girl in the class. Because it was just this opportunity to see the days Castle longs to have back again, where Alexis was a little girl, which I thought fit perfectly into the present day Alexis storyline, dealing with their fear of her father going missing again. Did you also get the vibe that the fairy princess scene was a look back at those days where Alexis was a little girl that, you know, we've heard a lot about on the show, but have not really seen? And did it match up well with the present day storyline, like I thought? Yeah, Dan, this was almost like a flashback to Alexis as a child without being a flashback in that it was probably exactly like the many times Castle and Alexis played princess. I'm sure that any father with a grown child reminisces to the times when their kid was little and wished they had more times like those now. Anyway, it showed us what a great dad Castle was to Alexis and it also paralleled well with the issues that Alexis was having with him being back and not wanting to lose him again because for much of her life she had to be the adult because Castle is such a big kid and her mother is such a flake. So it, it definitely fit 
in with that. And I thought the way they handled it all in this episode was very well done. It, it, it tied yep. everybody's feelings together with this mystery and this murder and everything and what they were doing. And it showed Castle he can still be that great dad or dad figure that he was. And maybe that means that he's not done being a dad. You know, he, he might want more kids. Well, that's what I mean. A standalone episode should be. Yeah, of, of Castle, it should be the way they they way the way they did this. It felt right, and everything fit together. And, and again, I mean, it wasn't the greatest episode, but there wasn't too much complaints about it. And I mean, really, if you get into the investigative sides of things, I mean, we got a trademark Castle mystery that started out small, get erupted into something big, revolving around an immigration slaving ring, and it ultimately ended with Beckett doing what she does best and what we expect out of her character: give a voice to the dead as she finished what the murder victim started, which was getting the Russian immigrants back home. So there was really no complaint from me here because it did exactly what this type of castle mystery is supposed to do. Nico, did you have any thoughts you want to share about this week's mystery? Dan, I did enjoy this week's mystery. It did, as you say, pull a castle where a small mystery that seemed like a simple single murder blew up into a huge conspiracy dealing with illegal immigrants, the Russian mafia, fake papers, and a kindergarten cop witness. I love how castle mysteries have a tendency to blow up into something so much bigger than we initially thought they would be. I also like the happy ending for the indentured servants immigrants being given a chance to live the American dream now that their oppressors have been taken care of by Castle and Beckett and not just sent back to their country by immigration control or anything like that. I thought it was well handled in the end. I thought they did exactly what the, the murder victim was trying to do for these people and is that get them away from the people who were oppressing them. Anyway, really good episode and more of what I expected from this show. So this is a great episode so for me to feel like, okay, we've turned the corner a little from the everything they had to get around in the premiere. We're starting to get some standalone episodes that are fun and really castle-like yeah. and and that's good and yeah we can go, jump back into the, the overall mystery of what happened to castle and how that all worked but it doesn't have to be the focus every week and we can have a lot of fun with these standalones and that's that's why the show is still a success in its seventh season well people felt a lot of relief i was talking to friends by to watch this episode that it did bring up the overarching story yeah they felt very weighed down by it and they just needed kind of a break from it so i'm hoping we get a string of maybe three or four episodes like this. Yes. And then jump back to that storyline. Agreed. Because I think people will be able to approach it much easier. And really, I mean, with, with this episode, Nico, I think you summed it up by your last line. Did you said there that this is a good episode? Get more of what we expected from the show. Yeah. So that if they can keep this going, they should be fine. Okay, with that, we're going to move on to an episode of Supernatural that gave me, surprisingly, a lot of hope, even though I went into it with nothing. So let's talk about the episode that's kind of summing up the theme of this podcast episode of Miracles. Of the Supernatural episode, Soul Survivor. Sam tries to release Dean from the Mark Kane. Meanwhile, Crawley seeks to help an unlikely ally after encountering problems due to Dean's behavior. Yeah, this week's Supernatural started out really scaring the crap out of me. Got me really bad like that I was screaming at my TV. Because it seemed like the writers were now going to set Sam's character off the rails in addition to Dean. Because it was revealed that Sam tricked a poor guy who was down on his luck to make a deal with a crossroads dealer so he could locate his brother. I mean, really? Do they need to do this? Can they talk about getting people to want to turn their TV off and stop watching this? Man, this was a close call. And if you stop watching the show, you know, I don't blame you, but look into what happened in the last five minutes of this episode. And just give it one more episode, I think. But we'll get into that in a minute. But Nico, I mean, did this review at first concern you as well? Yeah, I was not. What do you have with the last five minutes? Yeah, I was not a fan of it at all. It seemed completely out of character, and even redundant to the time when Sam was soulless and going on his crazy escapades. I, I just really was not a fan of that, Dan. 
I mean, what was even the point, right? I mean, did it serve a point at that point in the story? In the words of Chris from the Family Guy episode where he gets stuck in the Gaha music video through the freezer, Guy down now! <laughs> yeah. I really, I don't know what they were thinking here. Yeah. Again, I don't know what they've been thinking for the past couple weeks, but, you know, I, yikes. I mean, I think they were trying to say that they're both guilty of something or make Dean look, I don't know. I'm not even going to try. Okay. Um, it's just, it's over now. <laughs> Hopefully it is, I, I think. Because they don't go with that anymore. Right. Now, I mean, don't get me wrong with this episode. I mean, there were, oh, I guess, like maybe five minutes of decent stuff. Because that was Crowley's scenes where he kind of became bored as ruler of hell. Because I thought, you know, Mark A. Shepard, of course, makes this a fun display of dark humor. God, especially when the one demon tried to be his wingman. I thought that was a very funny part. How he handled that was brilliant. But again, this episode really, like the season premiere, I thought was played by too much exposition. As for, I mean, all the other stories we got this week. Because, I mean, that really goes for Cass. I mean, I guess the only scene that really sucked me into the episode, emotionally, besides making me laugh, was when Sam was going through the through Dean's family pictures. But beyond that, I was really bored the rest of the time, making me realize the only thing that could fix this show is getting back for the procedure, kept providing us with a monster of the week threat. Because right now, I mean, this show just doesn't feel like it has any action without it. It's just all, like, talking about what's going on and what's going to happen and character study stuff that I, I don't know, it just, it's losing me. It's not as intense as the other horror competing, competing shows out there now. They have two competitors right now, as in Sleepy Hollow and Constantine, and those two shows pack so much more of a punch with this, than this one. Even though this one used to be able to pack the same punch. But the big brick wall I ran into of this show getting back to that was really how could they do that, get back to the show's standard format with Dean as a demon. It doesn't work. I mean, the brothers need to be at conflict, but with Dean essentially being evil, I mean, you really, that's too much conflict. Yeah. It's not going to work with them working together. So do you go out and experience these same feelings while watching this episode until coming those last few minutes where you're just like, what are you going to do here? How is this going to work? There's no way you can keep this going. I was frustrated with this episode because like you said, Dan, I was a little bit bored by most of this episode. The whole process of returning Dean to human form fell flat for me. And the only interesting part was the chase scene with Sam and Dean. There were points during that chase scene with Sam that I truly believed Dean would injure his brother while attempting to kill him. Jensen Adkins sold it 100% and I thought that was probably the best part of the episode for me. But yeah. if turning Dean back is simply a move to get the Winchesters back together, well, that could have been handled in other ways and maybe even handled better. They could have been forced to work a case together for Crowley or Castiel, and we would have had Demon Dean and Sam trying to work a case together. And that could have been interesting at least once before they got to this point where they tried to turn him back to being human. At the very least, the Demon Cure-All ritual could have at least lasted longer, or could have lasted longer, or at least have had some more impact to it. I felt yep. like it fell flat for me. It, it's almost, almost, needed, it almost needed something like for him to see a vision of his father or mother or something yeah, like that to make it bigger. I, I don't know what it could have used. I just know it could have used something, you know? Yeah. It also It's also disappointing that Sam and Dean didn't get a resolution scene. Sam only talked to human Dean very briefly, and it was superficial at best. Maybe things are too raw to get into an intense discussion, but if we're going back to the way things were, they don't even exchange a moment at the end, really. The next episode, I think, has to deal, has to show well, them yeah. dealing with what's happened. So I, I just felt a little bit cheated, even by the, the last five minutes when everything...
everything seemed to fix itself for our problems with Dean being a demon. And we'll talk a little bit more about that coming up. But it, we didn't even get that resolution scene that we always get with this series. So I, w- I was really disappointed with this episode yeah, in that sense. And it really it just felt like, okay, how could we do this shining on Supernatural? Yeah, a little bit, right? That's really what it felt like. Because when I mean, Dean was busting through that door, I halfway expected him to say, huge shot. Yeah. You know, I mean, it, it, it's like they so wanted to do that scene that they forgot about everything else. <laughs> right. And it's like, where are we going here? Come in, this is just not smart. Kind of get maybe now that things are back to normal, be better. But I mean, at, up until Cass showed up, I really thought all hope was lost. But then the heavens opened up, got a miracle happened. As Nico already kind of said, Dean was cured of being a demon. But I really can't shake this feeling that it's too good to be true. Because I, I really did have this fear that as soon as Cass left the room, following their conversations, Dean's eyes were going to turn black. And he was faking it. I mean, I'm still kind of scared about that. I mean, I really could see this happening in a future episode. Because if it does, I'm going to be ticked off. But I mean, it just seems so bad that I'm so scared it's going to happen again. Nico, do you, I mean, share this paranoia? You know, no, only because I keep thinking back to the title of last episode, Reichenbach, which could reference Sherlock's faked death and could mean that every event from Crowley handing over Dean to Sam to Dean becoming human again is all a ruse. However, I can't rely on that because there was no wink, wink, nudge, nudge moment for the audience. All it would have taken is a quick flash of black of Dean's eyes, as you mentioned, after Cassio left the room, or some kind of connection to Dean in that last mysterious scene, and then I would have been right there with you, Dan, and paranoid that this was all a ruse. Since we didn't get any kind of sign, we're left to assume that Dean is indeed human again and meant to stay that way. I just don't know where this show is going or how they're going to make it make or keep it interesting for me going forward, because I, I actually would have been better off if they had made this a fake, because I was saying it was too easy, it was too short, it was too one episode for him being turned back to human. I think it needed to be more, and maybe if it this is all a ruse, I'll feel better about it. Even though I don't like the Demon Dean character so much, I think it would be better if it goes that route only because it makes it more interesting in the turning him back to human. So I don't think it's going to work because I don't have enough faith in the show to do something really cool like that. Neither do I. I think it's going to help going back to the standard format for me. Okay. Like, I mean, it's going to get me to watch it more because I've been dreading it every week. You know, it's been like, oh, I really have to watch this. Now I'm like, okay, at least it's back to normal. We'll see where we're going with this. But they need to end this show. You can't go longer than 10 seasons. No, I'm I agree. sorry. I agree. I agree. And then you kind of start pulling that day. Yeah. Really, the CW needs to come in and say, okay, enough. Because you know what? You know, a couple of years ago, yes, the network would have heard if it got rid of this. But I think they're secure now. Well, the CW is going to ride this cash cow until it's in the ground. That's the way networks work. But, but what? But, but not everybody, not Fox. Well, Fox doesn't realize they have a cash cow. They think everything is a losing product. Oh, that's true. So they don't they don't let it get to the point where it's a cash cow and making them tons yeah. of money. I just think, you know, that seems to cut it off. That's why I love it for me. I mean, it was Smallville. Yeah, but Smallville's numbers started going down. If if Supernatural's numbers start dipping, then the network will step in and say, hey, guys, you're done. Wrap it up. Yeah, the numbers haven't dipped, I guess. Not enough. Not enough to scare them. Yep. Yeah, okay. Glad it's the CW. They don't really have high expectations. Right. And any numbers that work on the CW would get you canceled in a moment on the other major networks. Right, but I just this show is not at the quality of their other programs that are popular right now. I agree. Meeting Arrow and Flash, yeah, I, I much more rather watch those shows over this one. And with that, I think we're going to go into a show that I'm always excited to watch every week. Because I think got back. I mean, it's not been terrible, but I think this one got it back with level excitement that we expect. And it, again, it went away from character stuff. It went back to shopping us, which is what this show I think does best. So let's talk about the person of interest episode: profits. <laughs> Thank you.
A talented political pollster's number comes up, and when his normally accurate predictions start going wrong at the same time, Finch suspects a connection. Elsewhere, Captain Moreno gives Reese an order that sidelines his work. Last week, I really criticized Person of Interest for giving us an episode that I thought was straightforward and unmemorable, minus the Elias seats. But this week totally made up for it with a plethora of twists that included Samaritan fixing the election the political pollster was predicting, Samaritan killing the winner of the election because it wanted her running mate in power, Get Finch having to ruin the pollster, who was played excellent by Jason Ritter's confidence in himself, as well as his credibility. Nico, did you think these twists were on par with previous Person of Interest episodes we've enjoyed? Without a doubt, Dan. I loved this episode and would propose that it was the best episode so far this season. I could go with that. The way Samaritan has once again changed the game by affecting human life by manipulating elections, causing political deaths, setting up their own candidate to take over, etc. This was next-level stuff from Samaritan and once again showed us why it is important for the machine to survive and the Person of Interest team to combat Samaritan and its operatives. Also, I'm glad you mentioned how great Jason Ritter was. I love that actor, and I too thought he excelled in playing the election numbers prodigy this week. Great character of the week in this episode. Good stuff. You know, I really enjoyed him. I know the show got kind of silly, but I really enjoyed him on the events. Yeah. That short-lived NBC show. Yes. He's very good at playing this paranoid character. So just a great choice. And I mean, I kind of root for the guy. I've seen him interviewed and stuff. God, he seems like a really good guy and, you know, really is a quality actor. He's just not got that big break yet, you know, because he's just got Council and stuff, but really, you did a really great job with this episode. The other thing that really helped this episode was we got those person of interest twists and that high level of thinking that this show is very good at delivering. Yes. Um, it's that the show hasn't been bad this season, but it hasn't gotten there. Like, we've kind of had a vibe of where it's going to go, and this one really had us guessing. You know, you, you couldn't predict where it was going to happen because there were points where I actually felt surprised. Now, the problem is when it shows in season four, you've seen all their tricks, so it's hard to get surprised. So I, I think we're going to see that kind of thing less and less for person of interest, but but they're still realizing they do something like this. They're still doing it in the way where it's good. So, you know, they may kind of hold back their cards a little more than they have in the past, but I think when they do that, it's going to pay off so much when they get to a point like this episode where they can deliver all of them. I can agree with that, Dan. I, I absolutely think that's a great great point that we've seen most of the tricks they're going to pull, but I actually think that they're great at disguising which one they're doing. Like you yeah. said, they kind of hold it close to the vest and then they kind of just hit us with something we've maybe seen or we, we've seen something similar to it before and it's still for me at least it still seems new because they do it so well so absolutely I, I like that they're still able to if not completely surprise us then at least make us think a little bit harder in this fourth season well Jonathan Nolan is really probably one of the most intelligent writers out there I mean he knows every trick in the book he's an encyclopedia of probably those tricks in the book Gad knows how to turn them on their head because he just he comes up with this Gad I mean really like with Samaritan even he's figured out how to make that different from the other machines or robots that want to take over the world in TV and movies. By him having Samaritan not want to change things with a nuclear explosion like Skynet, but use the world as it is to do its bidding by performing things like fixing elections. It's almost like they're using, they're almost doing more of a sleeper takeover with Samaritan than it flat out being God the machines take over and made. And I like that. I think that's so much more clever and realistic than it's a slow underlying thing that's happening than just wham. And in addition, I really liked how this issue got the flashbacks involved into this conversation between Fitch and Root where they debated if the machine, Fitch's machine, cares about its assets or just sees them as a means to an end in order to free itself. 
Nico, do you like the way you know the writers and Jonathan Nolan has gone about Samaritan taking over the world? Again, do you think the machine cares for its assets or just sees them as pods that can be replaced? I mean, are you with Team Root or Team Finch? I, <laughs> I do really enjoy this, Dan. I I love the way the flashbacks showed the process by which Finch finally settled on the final version of the machine because it was the only one of the forty-something tries that was not an abject failure or tried to kill him. That's nuts. The debate between Root and Finch was excellent this week, and I think it showed their compatibility as teammates and friends, and I think Finch genuinely cares about Root now and wants to truly be her friend, so she does not feel so alone now that the machine does not talk to and cannot talk to her as much. Yeah, that was a great moment. Yeah, I I really thought that that was well played. Of course it was well played. These are amazing actors, but it was also very well written. I liked how Samaritan seemed to be similar to many of the machine's early incarnations, and that without Finch hobbling the machine and teaching it morality, it could easily have turned into something like Samaritan. I'm not sure yet which side of the Root and Finch conversation slash debate I fall on with regard to the to Finch's machine. I think it has shown that it is more than just looking out for itself by helping set up false identities and save the person of interest Tipa on a number of occasions rather than just go out and recruit new teammates. But the question of its motives still remains. I think that question is ultimately the question of the entire series and we will not get an answer until the very end. But that does not make it any less fun to speculate and debate at this point. Right. And I like you saying that they should leave it to the end. Mm-hmm. That's going to keep the intrigue and mystery of the show up so it won't get stale. Yep. I think we're going to get just enough answers for Fitch to be over his issues of like distrusting the machine or being as paranoid about it. I think he's always going to be paranoid. Because I think a lot of his feelings right now stems from, yes, the machine has saved his life, got done a lot of things like that, but it's also taken a lot of people from him. It caused him a lot of hardship. So I get why he would be on the fence with that. Yep. Especially when his worst nightmare is coming to life through Samaritan. Yes. It's like, oh man, this is going on, but can this happen with mine? Like, have, have I done enough? Because that was great. And the other thing is, I think Root and Fitch are working out the differences because Root's realizing that Fitch needed to do these things to the machine. And, and she's seen it as something that maybe is teaching it now instead of something that crippled it. Because yeah. she's witnessing Samaritan being essentially what she originally wanted the machine to be. Because she's realizing, oh my God, that maybe wasn't the best thing to do. Okay. And so I think that's where they worked it out is she's understanding Fitch's motives a lot more. And I think Fitch is understanding where Root's coming from a lot more as well. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right. That part of the reason that they have become friends and, and teammates is because they both started to get rid of their preconceived notions of the other one and have sort of really dove into who they actually are and what their actual story is rather than just what they, they assumed when they first met or started going up against each other. So I think that th- that change in their dynamic and their, their relationship is why they are now going to be such great friends is because they see each other for who they really are and not who they thought the other one was. Right, I agree. Can I ask for odds and ends about the episode? I really like that. I really kind of like episodes that have a major character visit a psychiatrist. Like that Bones episode where Bruce shot the cloud got top of an ice cream truck because I think it just these types of things set up great character development. Got Reese visits were on the road to doing that. But I don't know, for some reason I want a little bit more. Even though Reese's, Reese's speech got the end of the episode did a good job of keeping Carter's character alive, which this show really has done a brilliant job since this happened. Again, you know, they, they keep going back to it, giving it a purpose to the show, which is nice. But maybe the writers might want to spread these psychiatrist visits over a series of episodes, so maybe that's why we didn't get, that's maybe why I felt like it needed more. I'm not sure. Nico, okay. what do you think about Reese's sessions with the psychiatrist? I don't know, Dan. 
I wasn't a huge fan of it, but then again, I wasn't really a huge fan of it with Booth on Bones, except that they had a great actor in Stephen Fry playing that Gordon Gordon character. And maybe that's what I needed out of the psychiatrist sessions. Maybe maybe that is what you needed. I guess I did like that Reese couldn't BS her. She was able to see through it all and call him on his BS. And it wasn't until he really opened up at the end that she accepted him. And maybe it will get better now that he is dealing with the loss of Carter. And that could open up some good character development for Reese. But I'm not holding my breath on being over the moon with this whole psychiatrist arc. I, I mean, it could do some really great stuff. It could just be a way for him to deal with the loss of Carter, which is going to be good for him. But I, I just don't know. I, I I don't think it's a, an arc that I'm a big fan of in general. I know you said you do enjoy it. I, I don't. That, that's just a, something that never really has been something I'm a, a big fan of. Yeah, yeah. Uh, same, same with me. Okay. Um, I, you know, I, I, I think maybe it should be a one-shot deal. But I really think Reese's interactions with the police captain were better. Get her kind of teaching him how to, I guess, be a cop or, or be... I don't know, maybe less less operative like. Does that work? Yeah. Yeah. You know, to make it more less CIA kid man and more, you know, true blue cop or more like Carter is a good example. Yeah. And uh, I, I think that's where they should go because that actress I thought was better and has more personality. So I think that's where they should go and explore these issues rather than using a psychiatrist. I mean, it just seems like the obvious way to go. But again, with all these other twists in the episodes and that, I'd rather have those things than this psychiatrist thing be surprising. Okay. Got another surprise. That I mean, it really wasn't a twist, but it was just more of a functionality thing that was cool. Was Samaritan allowing his assets to access God mode? I mean, that was pretty scary stuff to me. Again, that assets fight with Ruth was pretty awesome when it came to the gunplay and the music and all of it. Again, I just really can't wait to see Reese and Shaw take out one of these assets in God mode because they may get pretty creative when it comes to taking down enemies that have such a advantage over them. I mean, this is going to be really wild stuff. And I mean, Nico, as someone who's kind of got a crush on Davy Acker, you probably. I had to love seeing her kick out of that seat. It was, you know, really just exciting stuff. Yeah, I, absolutely. That was and will be pretty epic as it goes forward. I hope eventually we will get to see a full-on Root versus Samaritan asset both in God Mode battle, where the machine is full-on God Mode and allows Root to have all access to her and talking to Root fully, not partially like so far this season. I know she opened up a little bit more during this battle here, but I want to see it when she can go full out all of the machine's capabilities fully on and go up against another Samaritan asset in full god mode as well. I, I just think that will make for some great scenes. And then I also think that we will get some great scenes out of Reese and Shaw going up against god mode operatives as well, and they have to outsmart not only the asset, but Samaritan as well. And I think we will see them be forced to maybe lure those assets into the camera dead zones in order to well, get cool. to even the playing field and take them out. But regardless, it is going to make for some epic battles going forward, and I, for one, cannot wait. It's really got me excited about this Samaritan season. I know I've, I've complained a little bit about Samaritan being too powerful and it making it less interesting or less fun for us to watch the person of interest team try to save persons of interest without being able to use the machine at all. And I think once we see some of these full-out God mode-like battles, yeah. I think it's going to make for some good stuff. And I think once the machine... I think we're going to have to wait for the machine to... I don't know if it's upgrade itself or... They have to resolve this issue where the machine feels like it needs to hide. Yes, exactly. That's what I was trying to get to. It needs to get stronger. And if that's going to be... It upgrades itself or it just finds a way that it can start fighting back against Samaritan. 
Harrington, I think that that's going to be when we get to see some of this really cool stuff go on, go on and happen. Well, and, you know, we, we've seen it's getting to the point where we think Reese could beat anybody. Right. Okay, so this is the way to up the ante. Yeah, make it so he has such a disadvantage that it actually challenges him. And it would be interesting to see an episode where maybe they kind of get their butt kicked the first time. I mean, nothing severe that it knocks them out of the show, but it would be interesting to see them kind of suffer a little bit of a loss or a beating against these operatives. And then, you know, the episode ends with them ultimately figuring out how to outsmart them. Okay, yeah. So that would be cool stuff. And finally, as for more speculation about the machine, Fitch told the machine at the end of the episode he wants to talk. And I wonder how that's going to be possible. Is the machine going to take Fitch to its location? Okay, will that run the risk of either exposing the person of interest team or revealing the machine's location to Greer? What's your crackpot theories on this one, Nico? Okay, this might be the reason why it's got to go into full god full on god mode to almost protect itself. I think the machine is going to call Finch and talk to him like it used to talk to Root. Essentially in full god mode, but conversationally. So is it, you think we're going to hear a voice for the machine or it's going to be like a code thing? It's going to be a voice, but it's going to be using other people's words. So it's going to, okay. like it does with the numbers, it's going to co-op those words and put together a message so it can talk with... So it's it going to be talk. kind of like Bumblebee and Transformers. Exactly, exactly. That's a, yeah, that's a great analogy. I, I think they're going to they're gonna talk like when he was training the machine and using the command prompts to talk back and forth, but well, it's going to use cool. that it's going to use that voice sort of thing we were just talking about. And it's I think the machine. What can I do? <laughs> yeah, I think the machine will somehow be able to call Finch on his protected network and thus keep itself, the person of interest team, and Finch's cover safe while also keeping the conversation private from Samaritan. So I do. I don't think this is going to be an exposure risk. I think they're going to hash things out, and maybe there's going to be some exposure or something. But that's how I see it working. I don't think Finch will need to go anywhere to talk to the machine. Rather, I think the machine will come to him in a sense and contact him on the secure network and through maybe his secure internet connection. That's my theory anyway. I just don't see it going the route where he has to actually go to a physical location to talk to the machine. Yeah, I agree. I, and I don't think that's silly at all because when they got Surrey out there, people are talking to the machine now. Right. So it's not so outside the box anymore. Nope. Again, if you would have said something to me about this maybe 10 years ago, could have been like, okay, maybe that's too much for the show. Because <laughs> too much Knight Rider, but it's not like that anymore. Yeah, or how, you know. Right. Exactly. So it's really not out of the wheelhouse. Because that's what's great about this show is that, you know, technology is becoming the science fiction and technology is becoming science fact. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's perfect for the show. Yeah, this is such a great show. I love it. And it's yeah, getting, dude, I look forward to it every week. It's getting back to being one of the things that excites me the most about my TV week. Right. Yeah, and really, if those first, like, four episodes was this show's rough patch, that's a pretty darn good rough patch. <laughs> yeah, good. exactly. Exactly. So, you know, it's still it's still good. It's still going strong. It's just, once you get to a point where you've done all your tricks, it gets a little hard to do things. But again, I think Jonathan Nolan knows the right time to pull the plug on this well. So it's not going to die either. Because again, I, as I said, he's a pretty smart writer. Because speaking of smart writers, we're going to go talk about the other show that I really look forward to every week. And that I wish was an hour and not a half an hour because okay, I just keep wanting more of it. Because that's the Star Wars Rebel episode that I just, oh my god, I love. Called Fight or Flight. <laughs> Hera sends Ezra and Zeb on a simple errand, but they pull a crazy stunt and steal a TIE fighter instead. It proves useful when rescuing innocent prisoners en route to a labor camp. This episode started out very simple in nature, with Ezra and Zeb getting in a humorous argument, like we envisioned they would, and that forcing Hera to send them got a supply run, which was made a lot of fun through the competition to growing friendship between these two characters. Nico, did you enjoy getting an episode entirely focused on Ezra and Zeb? Yes, absolutely. We knew this was coming, but that did not make it any less fun to watch as these two annoyed the heck out of each other 
and in the end became best buds, almost brothers, that we knew they were destined to become. It was a brilliant move in the end to pair them up and have them save each other in doing so, cementing their friendship. I also love how when they got back to the ship, they instantly got in a new fight with the droid Chopper. I guess my only complaint was that there were buddies now, almost felt too rushed with it being handled so early in the series and essentially in a single episode. I suppose they could backslide in a few episodes and have to go through this all over again, or, you know, just have that brotherly competition relationship, but it's just a little complaint and not really even a complaint in reality because it was so small. Yeah, you know, and I think the episode ended purposely with them getting in another argument again to say that's something they're always going to do. Yeah. Because it's going to be a part of the show. Again, again, we knew this was coming, but it was done in such a fun fashion that I loved it. Yeah, like, exactly. it, just, it, it had me enthralled the whole time. Again, really my favorite part of the whole thing, I mean, this is just brilliant, was Zab commandeering the TIE fighter. Because who would want a chance to fly one of those things? I mean, this is going to be a fantasy that I think all of the Star Wars kids have. And I really thought it was cool because Ezra used the Force to avoid the giant rock formation where the windshield of the fighter was covered in squashed fruit. Nico was the inclusion of commandeering a TIE fighter because fun to watch for you as it was for me. Of course it was. This I sort see. of hijinks is what makes this series fun to watch. We know that Ezra and Zeb are the two that are most likely to get the team into trouble because they are both impulsive and tend to lack foresight. Stealing a TIE fighter was hilarious and fun, but made more so by Hera and Kanan's reaction when they heard about it. I loved it. Also, the way they are handling Ezra's force abilities is perfect. It is absolutely being appropriately handled given his novice status as far as having him some moments where it's more help than others, such as when he sensed they had to avoid the hill even while he couldn't open the crate or move the bowl earlier with the force. I think the way they're going about it and his lack of control is so great. It's exactly what we expect of a, a novice force user. Right, right. I agree too. And I think really what helps this show have so much fun is that now that the Empire is established, the only way you can go is up. Yep. Because I feel like they were shackled. I mean, Clone Wars had its fun parts too. But I felt a lot of times they were shackled by having to make it go dark. Yeah. In the, you know, in the fall of the, the Old Republic. Got this... I mean, this is just, you know, aiming to misbehave. God, that's just fun. God, I, and I do, I really, I really like this series because of that. And again, it feels like the old days of watching the original trilogy. They really have captured that feel perfectly with this. And then thrown in some other things, like the classic, you know, unlikely pair. Uh-huh. And it's, it's, it's working perfectly on this. And I, just, I can't get enough of it. It's just genius. Really what they've put together every week since what we've seen so far. And also, I mean, this episode had some really great lines in it as well. Yeah. Including Zeb telling the stormtroopers, this is not the tie you were looking for, which of course everyone knows is just a great reference to a new hope. Got the stormtrooper Ezra fought at the end of the episode going, you're doing all of this for fruit? I also got a good chuckle out of Ezra and Zeb thinking they were hot stuff for Kevin during a TIE fighter. And Kanan going, you remember to take out the tracking device, right? Because you get a good laugh and smile at these moments. Yeah, I love how this series feels so much like the original trilogy with references, lines, scenes, and shots that almost exactly match those we've seen in A New Hope and Empire and Jedi. The whole feel of this series just reminds me so much of the originals that I can't help but love everything about Rebels. I just hope they are, and I know they will be, able to maintain that feel throughout this entire series. Right, and it's just a great way to hype episode 7 as well. Oh yeah. I mean, you're, you're getting back into this environment, which I think the original trilogy environment, I mean, which I think is what J.J. Abrams is also trying to capture with episode 7. So this this show is a perfect way to build up to it. Because I really just saw 
rooting for Star Wars again, watching this. And in fact, every time I watch an episode of the show, I want to go back and watch the original trilogy. Oh, me too. Because, I mean, it's that much fun. And again, as I said, I want more from this episode than just a half an hour. Yeah. Because, like, it's like, it's over, the fun's over, and I even found myself wanting to watch the episodes again because they're just so much fun. I I totally agree. I'm always disappointed when it goes to the, the, the cut screen at the end. I'm always like, oh, can't we have more? Yeah, I know, I know, really. You can't get enough of this stuff. And I really liked how this episode also established Kara and Kanan against the parental figures of the Rebels crew with them solving arguments, correcting mistakes, kind of worrying about Ezra and Zab when they thought they were gone too long. This is kind of like a relationship that May and Agent Coulson have. Yeah. Got Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. And that works really well and it's working really well on this show as well. So I really like that inclusion. Get on, Nico, what's your thoughts on these characters taking on the role of parental figures for the crew? Yeah, Dan, the entire crew slash team feels like a family with Hera and Kanan acting as the parents and Ezra and Zeb as brothers. And we haven't really seen it yet, but Sabine will be the sister character going forward. Having the two leaders of the team act as parents makes sense and is why I feel like the team feels like a family rather than just a team of rebels. It also helps that they are cramped in that ship and it acts like a family on a road trip almost. I almost expect Zeb to complain, Mom, Ezra's breathing on me. (laughs) I kind of like that dynamic. And I love that, you know, they have to share a room and everything like that. It just, it it plays up the brother dynamic and the whole family dynamic throughout. I like it. Yeah, I really like it too. And you know, Nico, the the, the thing of it is, is I really hope we get episodes that focus on each of the characters for us to get to know them and understand their role in the family. I feel like this first one was kind of focusing on Ezra and Zab and saying, these two are like brothers. They're going to argue, they're going to bickle, they're going to do that. But again, we do need that episode with Sabine. Just going to focus on her and say, okay, she's the sister. Yeah. Well, I think we also need like the some flashbacks to see how they got to be rebels and where they came from. We saw Ezra's. We saw Ezra's in the pilot. That was how he became part of the team. But we want to see for everybody else how they met, how they all came together. Right. Much like the ship needs to start running out of gas. Yeah, I was just going to say, much like out of gas, my favorite of the Firefly episodes where we get a flashback to seeing Zoe and Mal and when they bought the ship, when they hired Wash, when they found Kaylee to fix the engine. Yeah, absolutely. We need something like that for this series. And it doesn't have to be soon because everything they've done so far has been great, but it will be fun when we do get to see that. Yeah, and finally, in the words of Master Splinter, we got a funny to finish off this episode. Yeah, Sabine revealed the cartoon she painted of Ezra's bed collapsing on Zeb. Nico, did you think this is a great way to cap off all the fun that was had between Ezra and Zeb in this episode? And in my opinion, I just thought it was a very classic cartoon. Yeah, it capped off the fun we had all episode. I mentioned earlier that we hadn't really gotten a scene to, or a feel for Sabine being the sister of the team, and I think maybe this was meant to be that start of that. It, it wasn't enough to really say it, it's her thing, but it was the start of it, at least. Regardless, it was a fun way to end another good episode of this great new series. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really was. I just thought it was a good time, good show, but I just can't wait for the next episode. Yeah, yeah. Got I am, for this. Yeah, I am as well. It, it's so much fun every week. I just, yeah, I want more. Yeah, and with that, we're going to move on to the other animated show that we're always disappointed when it comes to it. Because that's The Legend of Korra, with the episode entitled The Calling. Earth. Fire. While the young airbenders look far and wide for Korra, Iki is briefly captured by two Earth Empire soldiers. Based on what they say, Iki leads the trio to the swamp. There, Korra is still haunted by visions of being hurt by her past enemies, but manages to connect to the siblings through the great Banyan Grove tree's roots. After they beg her to resume her avatar duties to face Kavira, Toph's advice helps Korra to let go of her fears, bend the rest of the poison out of herself, and re-enter the avatar state. We said it would get better, but I still found myself disappointed with Toph helping Korra get over her fears, because it felt like a job that 
Hudson, Katara, or any of Korra's mentors could have done. Okay, it would have been nice to have some backstory bridging the original series. Get this one. To explain why this job needed to be just for Toph. Nico, were you disappointed with the training of the swamp? Yep, I really was. You nailed it on the head, Dan. What we got from Toph in training or healing Korra could have just as easily been done by any of her previous mentors, and really the idea that it was Toph seemed more gimmicky than actual story-driven. I thought they were going to go for a Yoda-like interaction, but failed to match up with that goal. Really, Toph was a huge disappointment for me completely. That was really, really disappointing. They didn't even dive into why she was hiding in the swamp or any of that sort of stuff. It was like they had a great idea and then just fell short. Yeah, I I don't know. It was just like, they're just like, okay, if you seek Toph, everyone's going to be happy. Yeah. No, I I want more backstory. And this show kind of drives me nuts when that happens. Yeah. They leave things open. Again, Zuko, again and again, I always say it. What the heck with his mother? You know, tell us. Yeah, I agree. And then the same thing with Toph. But again, there's a big mystery about Sokka. Like, where is he? What happened to him? Are we still going to see him? You know, there's, I mean, it, it's, I thought this was going to give it to us. Yep. And again, I don't know if we're putting up too high expectations, but yeah, what the heck? God, I hope Toph comes back because it seems like it's not. Yeah, it did seem very final at the end, you know? And that's crappy too because there's all this stuff with their family that needs to get worked out, kind of. Yeah, I don't know. I, I Like I said, I was really disappointed with her entire arc. Yeah, and I, I don't know if it's because they got too carried away with the nostalgia that I'm going to explain in a minute that they got to with Tenzin's kids or, or what the deal was, but they missed it and I hope that if they do bring in Sokka or Zuko again, that they don't do this again, or, you know, they can bring Toph back for another part. I don't know. Again, I'd like to see all of Team Avatar, the original Team Avatar, reunite and help in the, the final battle, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Because we don't have a villain, Ginkuvira, that will, that needs them to come together. You know, it seems like an issue just the other day with Korra. Again, I'm still not convinced that Kuvera is the final big bad for this season. I think there's something else under the surface, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I hope there is, because I don't think Kuvera lives there's up to, enough. like, the yeah. Fire Lord of the original series being the, the ultimate big bad. I don't think it lives up to that. But maybe it will. Maybe we don't know something about her that will be yep. revealed. So, there's always that potential, but I think there's something driving behind her. Maybe there's some hidden thing yeah. in her past or, or someone pulling the strings behind her that'll make this even more interesting. Got a cool thing about uh, that character which I learned because she is voiced, Guevara is voiced by Robin Williams's daughter. Oh. Yeah. I didn't Robin know that. Williams, yep. Yeah, cool. Because that's an interesting thing I found out. So that's a really cool thing. Again, on the flip side, I really did enjoy the storyline with Tenzin's kids searching for Korra. Because it really made me nostalgic for their original series. Because they partook in the antics and arguments that the first Team Avatar had. Because it was nice to look back at these moments if this season of Korra is the last time we get to see the Avatar universe get animation. Nico, this storyline also made you nostalgic for the original Avatar series. Because did you like that some more focus was put on Yuki and Milo, who are normally background characters that used to light the mood? Dan, this was a great move this week to have Iki and Milo take center stage in an episode that could so easily have been ripped from the original series, as they even mentioned here that they were all the same age as Aang and his group were when they were traveling the world on missions. I loved it. I also felt like the themes, antics, and entire plot was so reminiscent of something from the original series that I couldn't help but want to return to watch some of those episodes as well. So, so well done that it made up for the fact that the character from that original series that was present in this episode was such a huge disappointment. Yep. This aspect made up for that aspect. So, I 
ended up really liking this episode, despite our disappointment we mentioned before with Toph. Well, there were even references to Toph jokes in the episode with the kids. Yeah. That were better than what we got from the older Toph. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wild. Yeah, absolutely. Like with the drawing thing, where uh, you know, they hold up the drawing. Right. And he actually well. Like, that was really funny. And just he keep ruining his, ruining his chances with that girl and stuff. That was really fun. Yeah. I really liked it. Again, I felt like I was watching the original show. Yeah, the nostalgia really helped this episode, because it would have been not so great if we just got Toph. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Totally agree. And that's a sad thing to say, because I love the character of Toph. And finally, even though Toph's appearance did fall short, I was satisfied with how it meant so much to Korra that Tenzin's children were looking for her, and how that brought her back into the fold. Because I really love those moments where the hero is inspired by the very people who look up to them. Kaniko, were you satisfied this part of Korra resolving her fears created by past enemies? Again, I really think the kids saved this episode. Because if it wasn't for them, it would have been uh, questionable. And I think Korra's return would have not been as exciting or as powerful, I guess. Yeah, I love that the thing that, quote, called Korra back to the world and the job of the Avatar was Tenzin's kids. There is no one that looks up to or admires Korra more than those three kids. And the fact that they would risk everything to travel the world and search for her was just the motivation and spark to help her heal and give her the strength to face her fears. Let go of her past battles and enemies and heal herself. The idea of a hero drawing strength and inspiration from those she normally inspires is nothing new in literature, TV, or film, but it was still great to see Korra do that here, especially with three of our favorite supporting characters. If the Toph thing frustrated us, it was everything else this episode had, like this nostalgic search for Korra, taking Kenzin's kids across the world, searching for her, and Korra drawing the strength necessary to conquer her fears from those kids that made this episode successful, and yet another great one in the absolutely great fourth and final season of this show. I am absolutely loving this final season, and it's things like this, the nostalgic feel of this episode, and everything that made up for the bad Toph section that made this such a successful episode is why I'm loving this fourth season. Oh, I agree. I can't agree enough with you. Um, yeah. It's really well done way to handle this, and it was almost like Egg himself was calling Korra back because those three kids reflect his personality so much. Exactly. And so that was a nice way to connect them both without having to do the Avatar state, since they've kind of removed that in their connection with the past selves due to the events of the second season. Right. So that was that was a, a good way to cap it off to do that, despite Toph and that being disappointed. So with that, let's move into our sitcom section. Again, there weren't a lot to say about these episodes, but uh, we'll mention them anyway because they're so you know, popular and so we're still interested in them. So let's talk about the Big Bang Theory episode, The Expedition Approximation. All started with the Big Bang Sheldon and Raj undertake an underground research expedition that turns into a test of how long before they get under each other's skin. Meanwhile, Leonard and Penny argue about money and go to Wallowitz and Bernadette for advice. My favorite comedic moment for this week's Big Bang Theory was Sheldon and Raj going underneath the university's boiler room to see if they could survive on a mining expedition. Most notably, Raj explained the premise of Hannah Montana to Sheldon, and Sheldon leaving Raj to swim it out alone when a family of rats crawled out from behind him. Nico, what was your favorite comedic moments from this episode? My favorite thing about this episode was any Anything not having to do with Leonard and Penny's relationship. Thank you very much. By that, I mean the whole Leonard and Penny argument over money was annoying and just more relationship BS that we hate about this show recently. However, it did provide some humor in that it gave us the whole Howard and Bernadette star grading system for doing chores. I also enjoyed Raj and Sheldon's simulated mining expedition into the heating tunnels of the school, especially Raj's comparison of Hannah Montana to Superman when Sheldon couldn't believe that no one would recognize Miley Cyrus at school because 
because she wore a wig as Hannah Montana on stage like Clark Kent wore glasses. That had me smiling. Yeah, great comparison, great Kiki moment. Yeah. Which is what the show should focus on other than that relationship crap. Yep. Because really that could have been done on any sitcom. Yeah, exactly. It's not unique to Big Bang Theory. They need to do things that's unique to this show. Get its genre. Or its types of characters. Agreed. Okay, with that, we're going to move into an episode of Modern Family that I thought kind of fell short compared to the first four episodes of the season. That pretty much had me laughing all the way through or were pretty catchy. This one was a little slow for me. It really fell short with one of its guest stars. So let's talk about the Modern Family episode. Won't you be our neighbor? Phil is selling the house next door, and he and Claire can't wait to have new neighbors until they encounter an obnoxious couple who might buy it. Meanwhile, Jay is irate to learn that the godfather of Manny's girlfriend is his biggest rival in the closet business, and Mitchell and Cameron hear horror stories about Lily's teacher. I really struggled with picking a favorite comedic moment, as I thought this episode about her family was mediocre at best, especially the dumb fee plot line, which really fell short with Steve's odd appearance. But I'll let Nico cover that some more. But if I had to pick something, I'll go with Lily's teacher, Miss Plank, changing the word of the day to buffoons while Mitchell and Cam talked to her. Kind of the way Gloria said socks box, but Jay was telling her about his new impression. Kind of know her accent always makes me laugh. Because <laughs> some of the words and things the phrases they make her say are just hilarious to hear. So, funny stuff there. But uh, that was pretty much it for me. Again, I just thought it was a little, a little bit short compared to the other episodes we've gone this season. Nico, what was your favorite comedic moment for the episode? From the previews, I would have guessed that my favorite comedic moment was going to be something having to do with Steve Zahn's guest appearance as the annoying neighbor. But, unfortunately, Unfortunately, that entire arc fell flat and never really delivered on any interesting or comedic moments worth mentioning. But maybe we will get some of those in some future episodes since they did move in next door. Jay's feud with his former partner and now owner of the infamous Closets, Closets, Closets was amusing at times, but not really great either. I guess I'd have to agree with you, Dan, that Lily's teacher's sarcastic humor was probably the best part of this otherwise mediocre episode. I really do hope Steve Zahn and his future appearances are much better going forward because I love Steve Zahn. I think he's hilarious. And I think they just completely missed the boat with him this week. I agree. It could have been so great, and it wasn't. Because he's just a hilarious guy, and him and Ty Burrell interacting could really be funny stuff, and it just wasn't there. And what I'm hoping is they do start interacting and have these crazy moments, and they become friends because of it. That would be a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. And they had another guest star come last season. That was, it was Greg Kinnear. That really fell short, too. Yeah. That was disappointing. They sometimes don't know how to use guest stars so well on the show. Yeah, it's like the writers don't know how to write for anybody but their their actors. Yeah, and that's not a good thing, especially when you're an Emmy award-winning show here. Yeah, multiple Emmy, Emmy yeah. award-winning. So maybe Steve's out there will get better. I can only hope. I'm hoping for it. Alright, yeah. well since there is no new girl this week, we're going to move on to the closing. Okay, just as a quick announcement to stand up our sitcom section, The Big Bang Theory is now moving back to Thursday nights at its time slot at 8, 7 central. So with that, let's move into closing and Nico can tell everybody what we're doing for next week's episode. Can I think we're back to a full schedule, I want to say. Almost. Almost. I think New Girl might be off again. Yeah, it is. Baseball, that's what I thought. Yeah, on next week's episode, we'll have a News with Nico section with all the TV and entertainment news that has come out in the next week, and we will continue to cover the new series of Doctor Who with an in-depth discussion of the first part of the two-part season finale with the 11th episode entitled Dark Water, and we will have our reviews of Castle, Sleepy Hollow, Person of Interest, Supernatural, Legend of Korra, and Star Wars Rebels. And our sitcom section will include an episode of Big Bang Theory, which Dan mentioned is returning to Thursday nights starting this week, and yeah. Modern Family. So join us next week for all of that. Also remember that our entire back catalog is a available. If you're just getting caught up on any of the shows we cover, go back and catch Dan and my thoughts on those episodes. But for even more reviews and information on all our favorite shows, check out the blogs available on our website at acrosstheairways.com. Now roll that closing. <laughs>
And also, you can check out our spinoff podcast. Kanika, you want to help me in describing the first one? Sure. The Helicarriers podcast, which is Andy's podcast on our network, dedicated to covering episodes of Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. We also have It's Tangent Time, which is Michael and Wu, and they talk about all kinds of things, geek-related, nerd-related, all the great stuff that we talk about in super in-depth, way more than you could do in a single episode of one of our other podcasts. So they dive deep in those episodes and talk about it and sometimes they just go off on major tangents that's why it's called tangent time exactly we also have the back catalog of longbow hunters the arrow podcast which has officially wrapped up but all of our back catalog is available so if you are going back and watching the first two seasons of arrow again you can go back and listen to Wu and michael's discussions on any of those episodes and all the new arrow episodes will be along with gotham the flash and Constantine in the new revamped DC Nation podcast, which will be Dan and I talking all things DC. It's going to be awesome. And that will still be available on the regular KTA feed, as well as its own feed on iTunes, just so you're not confused. Yep. And you can also contact our podcast through email, got across the airways at gmail.com, Facebook, Twitter, got across airwaves. There's no on there because just across airwaves or Google+. Kadiko House, can you cut? You can leave a voicemail at 773-809-3363. Give us thoughts, feedback, or a review of any of the shows we aren't currently reviewing, or tell us what you want us to review. You can do all of that by calling 773-809-3363 and leaving a voicemail. And how can you listen to our show if you don't know so already? You can listen to our show through Stitcher Radio, iTunes, and the Mix Radio Network, thanks to our good friend Jack Stifle. And you can also listen to our episodes by visiting our website at www.acrosstheairways.com. All right, so once again, for other ATA podcast hosts, Nikki Amy, Andy LeBach, Lou Kemp, Michael J. Petty, Guy Dan Schmidt, and I'm Nico Rechtsnick. And until our next episode, we will catch you on the airways. See you, everyone, and I hope this episode made you believe in miracles. See ya. return to our regularly scheduled program.